The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello, I'm Justin Briley and today's edition of The Profile is a special tribute programme marking the life and legacy of Billy Graham, who passed away on Wednesday the 21st of February 2018 at the age of 99. And you can request a free Billy Graham tribute magazine featuring over 90 pages of features and photos from across his ministry. Simply request your free copy at premierchristianity.com slash Graham. And now, speaking to friends, family and ministry colleagues, this is the story of Billy Graham and a life well lived. First of all, you have to meet God with life. I do not believe that any man, that any man can solve the problems of life without Jesus Christ. In the long march of evangelists across the century, people like John Chrysostom of Constantinople and Wesley and Whitfield, he stands right in line with them. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Have you believed in the Son that was lifted up? He doesn't go out to make it dramatic in, in the sense of trying to coerce people or anything that, that he doesn't pressurize people, but he just lays the gospel before them. Religion without a personal encounter with Jesus Christ will not save the soul and it will not bring the peace that your soul longs for. Billy is so sweet to cake and yet there's a terrific steel in the centre of it. He's a, he's a man of, of tremendous steel. If you call upon him, he will forgive. If you repent, he will forgive. If you turn to Christ and trust only in the cross and the blood of Christ, he will forgive. He knew what his calling was. One got the impression that with all the other privileges of state, if you like, Billy was always very focused. He was and remained an evangelist. Perhaps you are here tonight and you feel a bewildering sense of lostness in your life. Well, tonight you can find that something because that something is the Lord Jesus Christ. I rarely go anywhere to speak or to visit when somebody doesn't come and say, it was through Billy Graham that I became a Christian. You come just as you are and come to Jesus who's on the cross for you and who rose again and who's a living Savior. I'm going to ask you to come from all over this stadium and make that commitment tonight. You're not coming to me, you're coming to Jesus. His evangelistic ministry spanned seven decades. He preached directly to 215 million people in over 185 countries, and through print, TV, film and radio, he has reached millions more. Countless people can trace the start of their faith in Jesus Christ to the inspiration of one man, Billy Graham. His was a life well lived.
William Franklin Graham Jr., Billy to his family, was born on the 7th of November 1918 on a farmstead in Charlotte, North Carolina. He was the eldest son to parents Frank and Morrow, who worked hard to keep their family fed, clothed and educated. John Pollock was Billy Graham's official biographer. It was a very happy childhood. His father was a dairy farmer, so he grew up on a working farm. Uh, and his mother's father also was a farmer. Both families were strong Christians, but his father... Franklin had wandered off for a bit and then came right back before Billy was born, but they didn't fully understand and Billy helped them a lot in later life, but they gave him a wonderful background of Christian teaching, really. Billy grew up on the homestead alongside his brother Melvin and sisters Catherine and Jean. He worked hard on the dairy and loved playing baseball. He was also a hit with high school girls due to his height, wavy blonde hair and blue eyes. There were moments of teenage rebellion, but Billy always respected his parents and the Christian values they espoused. Still, for the North Carolina farm boy, God held little interest beyond Sunday morning. But a transformational experience awaited Billy around the time of his 16th birthday when he was invited to drive a truckload of friends to an evangelistic rally being led by one Mordecai Fowler-Ham. Speaking while she was alive, Jean Wilson, who worked with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, takes up the story. Well, uh, this Mordecai Ham came to his hometown in Charlotte and his father was involved with the organisation of these meetings and uh, Billy went along with some of his friends uh, to these meetings and he, were, he, he said he was the last person on this particular day to go forward and he sort of wrestled with himself. As his 16th birthday passed, Billy returned again and again to the tent revival to hear the itinerant evangelist's message, John Pollock. At first he wasn't impressed, but it reached him fairly soon. And he, he even joined the choir to keep away from the eye of the evangelist he thought was directing himself to Billy personally, as you know the way it is. He realised the Lord was calling him personally. He then went forward and was a bit worried that he wasn't weeping or anything like that. It was quite an unemotional conversion then. But he had friends, particularly one from one of the colleges, who helped him to grow, and he grew very fast in the faith. Billy's newfound faith eventually led him to study at the Florida Bible Institute, Billy didn't set a particularly impressive academic record, but the college's dean spotted a potential gift for preaching and encouraged him to exercise it. The first sermons he ever preached, he said he prepared this sermon really well and he went out to preach and he got three sermons and he preached this one. It was all over in two or three minutes, so he preached the second one <laughs> and then he preached the third one <laughs> to fill up the time. And uh, I think from there he's just, you know, just felt, felt the call to, to preach and to do, and that's been marvellous. Practice makes perfect, and Billy's first faltering attempts were followed by increasing numbers of invitations to the young preacher with a forceful delivery. As he pondered whether a ministry of evangelism lay in his future, a setback in love knocked Billy sideways. 
he had become engaged to a college sweetheart, who later broke off the engagement for another man. It left Billy wandering the fairways of the nearby golf course, crying out to God about the future. And on the green of the 18th hole, he made his decision. It was then that he really saw that there was only one thing to do: to give himself completely to the Lord, to do what he wanted, not what Billy wanted. He once said, I remember him saying that when something like that happens, there's only two things you can do: you can either blame God and fall right off, or you can accept His will and see what the next step is. And that's what he did. And not only did he later find just the right girl, but he found a tremendous desire to bring other people to Christ. John Pollock. That person just right for Billy would be Ruth Bell, who he met in 1940 in his first year at Wheaton College, Illinois. Their love would blossom into marriage in 1943, and eventually five children. The couple's relationship would have to endure both good and hard times, with Billy's extended periods away conducting crusades. His ministry began with Youth for Christ evangelistic meetings. Musical flair was provided by trombonist Cliff Barrows and gospel singer Bev Shea. Two men who would remain an essential part of Billy's ministry team in the decades ahead. After touring in the USA, Canada, and even a six-month campaign in the UK, the team saw moderate success in their salvation message being received. But much more was to come. A Los Angeles mission in 1949 would prove to be a watershed in the story of Billy's ministry. But first, he would have to deal with a crisis of faith that would be a watershed in his own spiritual journey. A colleague had planted doubts in the young evangelist's mind over the authority of the Bible, and he found himself swimming in a sea of doubt. Richard Bues, longtime family friend to the Grahams, tells how Billy resolved his questions. He finally had to go to a mountain top at a place called Forest Home. I've been there. Billy Graham put his Bible on this piece of wood. I said, God, I don't understand all the things that are in this book, but I want you to know that from now on, I'm taking it as your inspired, infallible utterance, and that immediately caused an impetus, a growing impetus, which was marked at that Los Angeles mission. The ensuing Los Angeles Crusade of 1949 would indeed open Billy's evangelistic talents to a wider audience, as thousands flocked to the Canvas Cathedral to hear his message of repentance and faith. At the corner of Washington and Hill Streets in the city of Los Angeles, the largest tent ever erected for a revival meeting is now complete, and is called the Canvas Cathedral. And the tent is filled to capacity day after day. As men and women flocked to hear the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the popularity of the mission owed to a number of significant events. Morris Rowlandson worked side by side with Billy Graham for many years and relates one of the factors that put Billy in the headlines. There was one man who responded to the invitation, and his name was Stuart Hamlin, and Stuart had been、uh, the premier newscaster in Los Angeles area. And、uh, Stuart Hamblin was sponsored by Camel Cigarettes. He went on the air the next day after his response at the crusade, and he said, "I tell you, folks, last night I became a Christian." Now he said, "I don't believe Christians are supposed to smoke,、uh, but I'm、uh, sponsored by Camel Cigarettes. So all I can say is, if you have to smoke, smoke Camel, or the best of a bad bunch." Now that, of course, made headline news across the states. 
And before you knew where you were, all over the States, people were asking Billy Graham to come and run a crusade in their home. Alongside the wild radio presenter's conversion came the repentance of a well-known L.A. gangster. These facts alone would have been enough to make headlines in the papers, but the fame of the mission was assured by the intervention of newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst, who, bedridden in his California home, learned of the crusade through an employee. A maid had been to the mission and she told him about it. And he was very interested, and the story goes that he told his staff to puff Graham, and he suddenly found himself on the headlines, whereas at that time there was practically no religion on the headlines ever. Then the mission went on, was extended several times. It was that that gave him the opportunity to reach right across America. He was only then um, just 31, very young for those days. I do not believe that any man, that any man can solve the problems of life without Jesus Christ. Tonight, I'm glad to tell you as we close that the Lord Jesus Christ can be received, your sins forgiven, your burdens lifted, your problems solved by turning your life over to him, repenting of your sin and turning to Jesus Christ as Savior. He became well-known, and uh, it all went back to the uh, meetings in Los Angeles in the early days. But Billy wasn't touched by, you know, it didn't go to his head or anything. And he just has remained very, 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 very just down to earth. Characteristics of humility and integrity were to become benchmarks of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Early on, the core members of the team drew up a list of financial, ethical and moral rules that would prove to be a bedrock to Billy's ministry over the coming years. They worked it out together on the team. We will never take love offerings, for example. And so he's been paid a straight salary always. When they go and visit another country... And I've been the chairman of the Mission 89 here in London. We knew that they were paying their own expenses, their own hotel and everything. And again, the generosity of it was what struck us enormously. So on, the, on that side alone, Billy Graham has been very pure, the financial side. He is sacrosanct in the things he's done. He's watched very carefully, for example, that he's never in a room alone with another woman without another person being there. And so he's been... Uh, very careful in his way of life. Uh, as such, he's commended himself to those who've heard him. Billy and his team were laying the foundations for a ministry that would reach many people around the world. With his growing international fame came a responsibility to be a witness to the purity of the life he preached to the crowds who listened to him. I remember at, in Mission England, the uh, chairman was Bishop Gavin Reed at the time, and we were having a press conference. One of the um, reporters, I think he was from The Sun, came to Gavin Reed and he said, I just want you to know that your man is clean. We've tried. He said, believe me, we've all tried. Billy has remained clean in that sense, and there's been no scandal attached in any form. It wasn't just the outside world that Billy's own example would be important to. His family were witness to whether the evangelist practised what he preached behind closed doors, as Bosleyan Chivigian, Boz to his grandparents Billy and Ruth, reveals. Authentic Christianity, as you know, also includes sin and failures and frustrations. And to see authentic Christianity lived out in the lives of my parents, in the lives of my grandparents, 
uh, what a blessing to me because, you know, I grew up in a time in the 80s that uh, there were a lot of televangelists that uh, were falling from grace and were getting caught up in what the world was having to offer. And so I remember early on having a very keen eye watching my grandfather saying to myself, is this the same guy in front of the camera as he is behind the camera? With the ministry firmly established, Billy and his team were able to accept invitations from around the world. He travelled to the UK in the spring of 1954 to conduct a crusade at the Haringey Arena in North London, a mission now recognised as a benchmark in the Christian history of the country. But things didn't look so promising at the time, as Maurice Rowlandson recalls. At Haringey we had absolutely no idea what the response would be. And in fact, at four o'clock, Jerry Bevan, who was the crusade organiser for the team at that time, phoned Billy Graham at his hotel and said, the arena's empty. Now that was unusual for his crusades because in, in America they would be starting to fill up well before the, the starting time. And so Billy Graham came from his hotel that first night very fearful that there was going to be no one there. But when he arrived there were crowds outside who couldn't get in. Uh, and that was an amazing thing. And, and I remember my uh, PA and myself standing literally with tears in our eyes because we couldn't believe what we were seeing was happening. A phenomenon ensued, the likes of which the British Isles had never seen, as Billy's hot gospel evangelism, honed in the white clapboard churches of the southern states, somehow made a connection with a new audience. David Winter, former head of religion at the BBC, witnessed the Billy Graham effect take hold. I think everybody, everybody was astonished that this American evangelist, who was a typical American evangelist in some ways, and not at all in other ways, could make such an impact. And it was remarkable that by the end of that, I forget how many, ten weeks, I think, in which the place was full every night, the final rally was attended by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, you know, that is staggering. There was this American evangelist with the Archbishop doing the blessing at the end. And by then, he had been, you know, really accepted. He preached for the Queen of Windsor. So the conversion of the British people was instant. They, of course, still were a church-going culture at that time. People knew the hymns, they knew the Bible, they knew the Bible stories, and they were ready to be reached. And Billy Graham came along just at that precise moment. And uh, people came at first out of curiosity value, then quickly the word spread. And before you knew where you were, we were getting uh, not only full auditoriums, but over full. In fact, Harrogate originally seated 13,000 people. But by the end of the crusade, 12 weeks later, we were getting 15,000 people in because the management discovered that we were an orderly crowd, we were not likely to cause riots, and one by one they allowed us to sit people on the steps, stand them around the back, and of course there were no health and safety regulations, so we could do it. And so we went from 13,000 to 15,000 over three months. Londoners flocked to hear Billy speak, while a team of volunteers from local churches counselled those convicted by the message of repentance and faith. The streams of respondents flowing from all corners of the arena would become a familiar sight at Billy's evangelistic events all over the world. Richard Buse, former rector of All Souls Langham Place, recalls how he, along with thousands of others, was captivated by the evangelist's message. I was a teenager when Billy Graham first came to Britain, 
I was rather full of doubts because I wasn't sure what a hot gospel man was like from across the water. But we went along as a family, and I must say the first time I went, I was bowled over at Haringey by the strength and the power and the boldness of the message, which was on Bartimaeus, actually, from the Bible. Um, but that's what it was. It was partly family, and then we went along many, many nights, quite often bringing guests as well. It was remarkable because it lasted for three months. I didn't intend to start out like that. It was only going to be a short period, but people kept coming and coming, and so they kept it going for three months. And people would come onto the underground at uh, the station there, and they would be singing hymns, and the, the whole country, in a sense, just caught fire. And uh, so many people, so many people just came, and they crowded out every night for you know the whole of the three months period. The crusade put faith firmly in the headlines. But many of those who attended came simply because a friend asked them along. That was the case for Pat Holmes, whose first night at the Haringey Arena was to be a turning point in her life. He was so positive, and it was so real to him that the Bible says, and you couldn't help but think, I've got to listen to this man. He held your attention, obviously by the wonderful spirit of Christ in him. I was sitting there listening, and all of a sudden, there was a window came up into my vision and the curtains were drawn on this window and this voice audibly said to me look inside well no one knew this was going on with me but then I saw my sin for the first time in my life and I couldn't wait to get out of my seat and go right down to the front and accept this Jesus as my saviour even though I never knew him or of him And as I got up and walked right down to the front, as I took each step, I knew this Jesus, who he was, the Son of God, had come into my life. And that night, that very night, my whole life was changed as a young girl of 16. There are many of you here tonight that belong to a church. You live a decent moral life, but you've never really come to this experience of an encounter with God. You've never really surrendered your heart and life to him. You've never really received Christ. To receive a new heart from him, I ask you to come tonight. We're not going to keep you long, but I'm going to ask you to come and stand right here quietly and reverently and say tonight by coming, I give my life to Christ. I want a new life. I want a new heart. I want forgiveness of the past. I want Christ in my life and in my heart. As over 120,000 people attended the final night of the crusade in Wembley Stadium, it was little wonder that those involved felt a breakthrough had occurred in the spiritual life of the country. Enormous numbers of people attended and quite a lot of people went forward, got up out of their seats and came forward. Speaking of someone who was engaged in the counselling room most nights, I know that many of those were a long way off being converts, even further off being disciples, but they'd taken some step towards God. Now, many of them, unfortunately, I think, didn't get any further. And it also made Christianity, and this sort of Christianity, gospel Christianity, as we might say, a topic of conversation. The radio, the television, the newspapers buzzed with it for a few years. And some of us were kidded into thinking this was the change of everything, but of course, sadly, it wasn't.
John Pollock, official biographer of Billy Graham, wonders if the Crusades' momentum might have been converted into a greater revival had the evangelist been given the blessing of the Church of England from the beginning. Many, many churches were working of all denominations. Now, if the then Archbishop of Canterbury had rallied behind Billy, I believe the next decade or so would have been quite different from what happened. Archbishop Fisher was a very courteous son, but he took the line that anybody can go, but it wasn't for him. Until the last service, when he was there and gave the blessing and that sort of thing, it was too late, you see, by then. Nevertheless, the spiritual legacy of Haringey was undeniable. Along with the thousands who were converted, a new wave of church leaders was birthed, the Church of England's theological colleges being swelled with young evangelicals who had found faith through the 1954 crusade. Theological colleges were full of young evangelical men in those days who had been converted through Billy Graham and came with that sort of approach. And so, whereas before Billy Graham, there was only one evangelical bishop in the Church of England, for example, go 15 years further on, and there were 10. You know, that was the difference. I mean, it would have made an enormous impact on the Church of England and probably on some of the other denominations as well. It was mainstream Christianity that he shifted, which was interesting. And I think just generally a greater acceptance that Christianity is about the, the challenge of the gospel and about responding to it. It isn't just about good works or being a decent chap. In uh, 1966, 23 students from Oak Hill College, the Anglican College, sat on the platform at Earl's Court and all said they had been converted through Haringey in 1954. Uh, so it was, it was a very dramatic thing. Now, Billy Graham has always insisted that I should never keep a complete list of inquirers. He was dead scared lest there should ever be someone who wanted to form a Billy Graham church. So religiously, I've always sent all the names to the waste paper basket afterwards and left the Lord of the churches to do the following up. The events of Haringey in 1954 cemented Billy in the consciousness of the British public and now a global stage awaited the evangelist. Coming up, we'll hear how the world over, from presidents to paupers, would hear his message of forgiveness, repentance and new life in Jesus Christ. He reached over two billion people through rallies, books, TV and radio. He was the spiritual advisor to presidents and global leaders. His impact changed the course of Christianity in the UK and the world. And his message led millions to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Billy Graham was this generation's greatest evangelist. In a special free tribute edition of Premier Christianity magazine, read about his life and legacy with a unique range of archive photos spanning decades of ministry. Ask for our free Billy Graham tribute magazine at premierchristianity.com slash Billy Graham. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello, I'm Justin Briley. Welcome back to the second part of today's profile. And in a special tribute programme, we're marking the life and legacy of Billy Graham. And you can request a free Billy Graham tribute magazine with over 90 pages of features and photos from across the decades of his ministry. 
Simply request your free copy at premierchristianity.com slash Billy Graham. And now we continue hearing from friends, family and ministry colleagues on the story of Billy Graham and a life well lived. Lord, I go to church. Señor, yo voy a la iglesia. I'm not a real bad person. En realidad, yo no soy una mala persona. But God says we've all sinned. With missions through the 50s, 60s and 70s in Australia, South America, Europe, Asia, Africa and North America, Billy's international ministry would take him far and wide. Are you prepared to meet God? How do you prepare? First, you repent of sin. That means you change your whole way of thinking about God and about yourself and about life. Herringay was the thing that gave him the opportunity. John Pollock, Billy's biographer. But of course, half the battle is his extraordinary character of learning a great deal and being able to be, in the right sense, all things to all men. I had a very interesting remark by a leading churchman. Billy seems a world person. You don't think of him as an American. He had that wonderful gift all the way through. The son of a Georgia farmer was reaching the souls of millions of people all over the world. Records were broken. The 1957 New York crusade saw Madison Square Gardens packed out for three months and other venues around the city play host to hundreds of thousands of people. And thousands likewise responded to the calls of repentance and faith in Christ and churches were busy counselling new converts and discipling new members. Wherever Billy preached, he would call people forward to make a commitment. According to Morris Rowlandson, who was involved in organising most of Billy's engagements in the UK... This was where his gift lay. Well, I've always said Billy Graham is not a great preacher. He's a great caller. And it's the calling of people forward that he is, God has given him a special gift. Uh, we had, for example, a young man who was actually uh, the member of a pop group called McKenna's Gold. And he came to uh, West Ham where he gave his life to Christ, but he did not go forward. Uh, he went to Crystal Palace a week later with the express intention of going forward. So when Billy Graham made the appeal, he was the first one out, standing right at the front. He said, as I stood at the front, Billy Graham pointed at me and said, God may be calling you to be an evangelist. And at that moment, I knew God was calling me. Well, that was seven years after 84, that was 91. Today, he is a full-time evangelist with his own evangelistic association. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association set a precedent not only for the global scope and numbers of people attending their rallies, but also for inclusiveness. From the earliest days, Billy refused to allow any segregation of his audience, a controversial step in the southern states of the 50s and 60s. He once dramatically tore down the ropes that organisers had erected to separate black and white, saying, The ground at the foot of the cross is level, and it touches my heart when I see whites standing shoulder to shoulder with blacks at the cross. The campaigns also broke new ground in bringing churches of different traditions together in unified evangelistic efforts in cities across the world. Joel Edwards is former director of the Evangelical Alliance. He was willing to 
create a little bit of controversy um, uh, when he began to talk with and include Catholics in his meetings uh, many, many years ago, at a time when it was not fashionable for many sections of the evangelical world. And so he has demonstrated an ability to be entirely interdenominational, cross-denominational, supra-denominational, as very few people have been able to do. While the massive crusades of those decades were breaking new ground, the evangelistic organisation was also pioneering the communication of the gospel message through books, radio, TV and film. Over the course of time, Billy authored 25 books, many of them bestsellers. From early on, his Hour of Decision radio programme was immensely popular in the USA, as were the many television specials that were produced. Crusades were relayed to other venues in sound and pictures, as well as live on TV, and over 125 evangelistic films have been produced. Through the broadcasts and films, millions more were touched by Billy's ministry than just those he preached to face to face. David Kitchen was a young boy when he went along to his cinema in Lincoln, hired by local churches for a week-long mission. On the Wednesday night, they showed Souls in Conflict. There were a number of people uh, with various problems in their lives woven into, into the story and they all end up at the big mission I can remember that when Billy preached, I really felt like he wasn't preaching in the film, but he was almost like sitting, speaking to me. And when he talked about Jesus dying on the cross, the way he put it across made me realise, although I'd heard it many times before and could probably have told the story, made me realise that Jesus had died personally for me. And so when the invitation was given at the cinema uh, that day, uh, I didn't even ask my parents. I just got up and went to the front, uh, Vicar's wife, sat down with me and counselled me and prayed with me and that was really the start of my Christian experience. For Billy, the face-to-face encounter of citywide missions would always be his favourite way of getting the message across. But his demanding touring schedule took its toll on family life. With long periods of his time spent away in other parts of the world, it was Billy's wife Ruth who was responsible for keeping the family running. Well, he would be the first to tell you that... uh, He has not been a good father from the point of view of being with his children all the time. He gives tribute to the fact that what his his daughters and sons are are entirely due to the upbringing his wife uh, put into it. Uh, He gives great tribute to Ruth for the part she played in bringing up the family. If anyone was responsible for the longevity of Billy's evangelistic career, it was Ruth. To her husband, she was a constant companion and rock of support, while, as Jean Wilson explains, her concern for her children was that they should experience a disciplined but loving home life. They're just a normal family, and uh, uh, Ruth especially has striven hard to make it a normal family because Billy was away so much, and she had to keep the children together and the home together. And uh, she's a very spiritual person and did a lot of Bible study and just really uh, kept the home running on biblical principles. She was amazing. I mean, uh, some of the children had been... um, problems out frankly in his youth but uh, uh, she just kept praying for them and uh, amazingly you know they're all turned out well. As the years went by the family would come to include grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You know growing up they were our grandparents. We knew that they were well known. Uh, We would go to their crusades obviously and see the scores of people in the stadiums to hear them but when we were with them Uh, They were Daddy Bill and Tete, and they were, as much as we knew, (laughs) 
than most normal grandparents uh, just like anybody else would have had. Boz Chivijian is one of 19 grandchildren. While time spent as a family may have been normal, most grandchildren don't get to see their grandfather preach to the thousands that Boz would witness growing up. He recalls the experience of being at his famous grandfather's rallies. We oftentimes would get there early, we would go sort of behind the scenes, we would visit with him uh, wherever he was, and then you'd walk out onto the field. Sometimes he even invited the grandchildren to sit on the platform with him. And I'll never forget those moments, because you would go from this little room, step out, and walk onto a football field, surrounded by 50,000, 60,000 people, singing, and the choir singing. And what an incredible feeling. All, every single time would bring goosebumps uh, to me, because I would see, wow, these people are here to worship God. Beyond a schedule of stadium tours and arenas, Billy's personal witness also extended to many influential people. Nine of the last ten U.S. presidents have counted Billy as a spiritual counselor, earning him the nickname America's Pastor. Down the years, Billy would show an empathy and discretion that would make him the confidant of leaders all over the world. He has had a rapport with presidents, he's had a rapport with political leaders, he's had a rapport with industrial leaders, uh, with uh, medical and professional leaders, and the business world. And because they know he will never, ever breathe a word of anything he has said, it seems that his influence has been totally universal. Now, I have been with him when he has just met a high personage in the political or the royal family, for that matter. Uh, and I would die, die to know what he said to them and what they said to him. He has never told me a word. While religion and politics have often been tied together in America, Billy always tried to steer clear of such debate, believing that the gospel message transcends party politics. It was inevitably a balancing act, and there was controversy when Billy gave his support to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal. And Nixon, I think, genuinely wanted to help Billy and Billy to help Nixon. And Billy had no idea about the Watergate scandal behind the scenes, you see, until it became public. Then later on, after the fall of Nixon, he was a major factor in helping Nixon to recover in every way so that he ended up his life as an honoured elder statesman. And the thing about Billy is that he didn't reject Nixon because Nixon got into trouble. He stayed with him as much as he could while not condoning any wrongdoing. While White House visits and royal engagements weren't unusual for America's pastor, his family and colleagues ensured his feet were kept firmly on the ground. His example was an important one to those around him. Grandson Boz recalls paying a visit with a friend to his grandfather in New Orleans during a political party conference. It was nine o'clock at night, and as we got closer to the hotel, I said, you know, he's not going to be here. He's been invited to every social gathering, but I said, let's give it a shot. We went up to his room. I knocked on the door. About 30 seconds later, the door opened, and there is uh, Billy Graham standing in his pajamas, <laughs> inviting us in. And without him saying a word, I saw on his bed where he had been laying, I saw his Bible opened. I remember being convicted by the Holy Spirit, saying, you know, here's a guy that could be at any party that he wanted to be. He could be socializing with any important person that he wants to be with. And who does he choose to spend his time with tonight? He chooses to spend his time with his God.
Billy's first calling was to preach the gospel, and across seven decades he obeyed that calling in locations all over the world. Record numbers of people were reached. In 1973, 1.1 million people made Yoido Plaza in South Korea Billy's largest meeting held anywhere in the world. I want to say something I hope you'll never forget, he said. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. And that is the message I want to leave as I go back to America. Love one another in Korea. Wherever he accepted an invitation to preach, Billy's team went with him, and an army of local church volunteers would swing into action to organize publicity, training counselors, and ensuring that the churches worked together in prayer and discipling any new converts that the mission might bring. The evangelist himself would prepare by reading up on the local situation and acquainting himself with the culture and needs of the people he would be preaching to. And through it all, prayer was a vital ingredient. Richard Buse, former rector of All Souls Langham Place, worked closely with Billy during 1984's Mission England and London's Mission 89, when the evangelist made his last significant impact on the UK. I knew that although I would pray with him like a chaplain, before we went onto the platform, I knew that he'd done a lot of praying beforehand. It was brought home to me once by the fact that one of our London policemen, a Christian man who was asked to be in charge of security, was called to to one part of the Earl's Court Stadium one night and he went to the wrong door and without knocking he opened it, it was Billy Graham's room and he saw the 69-year-old evangelist flat on his face in prayer on the carpet. And he said to me afterwards, it was just an indication, one small indication, that here is a man whose commitment was total. Billy's impact was not only on those who can trace their conversion to his influence, his ministry also had a huge impact on other evangelists around the world. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association sponsored various evangelism conferences in Europe, the most recent of which was the Millennium Conference in Amsterdam. As biographer John Pollock explains, Billy's purpose was to see local evangelists equipped to spread the gospel effectively. He realised that there were a large number of evangelists who never realised there were other people working like that. And his conferences, especially were the Lausanne Conference of 1974, that transformed the church's attitude to evangelism. But it was very much a strategic business. The Millennium Conference in Amsterdam, the third they had, well over a thousand evangelists there in this vast hall. But they were getting the message and getting the sense that God could do this. In fact, Amsterdam's Millennium Conference saw altogether over 10,000 evangelists learning from the leadership example of Billy. But it wasn't just on big platforms that Billy's influence was felt. Innumerable individuals were touched by often fleeting interactions with the evangelist. David Kitchen recalls one such incident. At uh, an event called Eurofest 75, thousands of young people this time from all over Europe have been drawn to an event at Brussels. Just outside the stadium there was a very large house which was being used as a team base. And there was a young lad on the door, he must have been no older than about 17 or 18, and his job was as doorman not to let anybody in unless they'd got the official badge. And so we all came up to the door and a number of people went in 
And then it came to Billy Graham, and Billy Graham hadn't been given a badge. When he came to the door, this young lad said, I'm sorry, sir, I'm not allowed to let you in, you haven't got a badge. And some of Billy Graham's entourage began to get a little bit uh, irate with this, this young lad and said, you know, don't you know who this is? This is Billy Graham, he's, you know, the chief speaker at this event, etc. Uh, and the young lad said, I'm sorry, sir, I've been told not to let anybody in who hasn't got a badge. And Billy Graham very quietly turned to his team and he said, this lad is doing what he's been told to do. He said, I wish everybody was like that. He said, you go and get me a badge so that this lad can do his job properly. And for me, that really showed something of the character of Billy. He wasn't going to use his position of, of influence just to even get into the team building. He was willing to submit. It really showed the sort of character and the humility of the man. With the heavy schedule of evangelistic tours and conferences, the friendship and unity of Billy's team of colleagues and advisers were essential. Over the decades, Billy was accompanied by the same men and women wherever he went in the world. In the past, there's been Ted Smith, who played the piano, John Innes, who plays the organ, who's British, uh, Cliff Barrows, who conducts the choir, and uh, George Beverly Shea, who sings. That's his sort of platform team. And then there are others that have been working hard, training the councillors, uh, running the office, getting all the printing done and that sort of thing. He would always have said the team was the big thing, that we were always acting as a team. Cliff Barrows, George Beverly Shea and a whole vista of other people. And seeing Billy Graham and the team at work has helped me to see this is how teamwork is done. It's mutual support, mutual affirmation, looking out for one another, covering for one another, not saying this is my job, that is your job. And all of that has helped me very much indeed in my own life as a minister, particularly in terms of the team. The partnership in particular of Billy with baritone gospel singer George Beverly Shea was a memorable one. They met when Billy first began radio broadcasting early in his ministry and went on to share a stage for decades to come. Then sings my soul, my Saviour God to thee. He once said that he couldn't preach unless Beth Shea sang beforehand. I remember a local German newspaper trying to find some scandal or another and they printed an article in it and it said, Last night, Billy Graham was seen going into a Berlin nightclub with his beautiful blonde singer, Beverly Shea. <laughs> so, uh, they got it all wrong. <laughs> Jean Wilson. Behind the scenes, the atmosphere was relaxed, and there was never any question of hierarchy in the team, as Maurice Rowlandson recalls. He always mixed with us, and he made a point of seeing everybody if he could. He was tremendous fun to have around. The only trouble was you couldn't tell him a joke, because the chances are he used it in the sermon and get it wrong. In fact, I remember telling him a joke on one occasion, and his colleague T.W. Wilson, who was there at the time, said to me, Maurice, you shouldn't have done that. Billy will tell it and he'll get it wrong, and he did. Even when he told the jokes wrong, thousands of people felt a connection with the evangelist as he led from the stage. But away from the spotlight too, Billy was keen to give personal attention to his family and those he came into contact with, as his grandson Boz testifies. In his leisure time was most often spent simply with family, sitting around outside on the lawn, uh, talking, laughing, sharing stories. The fancy things in life didn't fancy him. The simple things, the cafeterias, the talking to the cab drivers, 
you know, the maid as she's cleaning up the hotel room and, and just finding out a little bit about her life. Those are things that, that he really enjoyed. He didn't feel like it was a duty. He, he truly enjoyed and oftentimes identified more of those types of people. Just as his ministry refused to recognize the racial divides of the 50s and 60s, so Billy, over the decades, sought to cross global political divides. One of the most remarkable aspects of the 1980s was his unprecedented visits to Russia and the Eastern Bloc countries. Even with the restrictions that the communist states ensured were in place, it didn't stop thousands of people turning out to hear the evangelist speak. Where international diplomacy had failed, somehow the son of a North Carolinian farmer with a simple message of forgiveness and peace, was able to cross ideological divides. Recalling his Moscow crusade of 1990, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, John Pollock believes Billy's influence on the international scene was much greater than many realise. He undoubtedly was a, a major factor, though the history books probably won't mention it, in the fall of communism. And I found one of the most moving incidents in my whole life was going to Moscow for the crusade held in the Olympic Stadium, which would have been positively illegal 18 months before. I'd travelled in the Soviet Central Asia at the time of the persecution, and to see the freedom, see them hungering, it was jolly, jolly impressive. Thousands of decisions for Christ were recorded at the historic Moscow Crusade, including many members of the Red Army Choir who sang the Battle Hymn of the Republic at the event. Reading from his memoirs, John recalls the significance he felt of that particular crusade. I could see Billy was near to tears at the scene, and certainly so was I, as I heard the murmur of this vast crowd praying the prayer after Billy. And I looked down at their serious faces, and I felt that 70 years of atheism had blown away like an evil mist, and that the deep Christianity of the Russian people a thousand years old had stood the test. Um, that was my immediate reaction. I quoted my diary of the day, you see. The major impact Billy's life and work have had on millions of people were increasingly recognised in official ways in his later years. He and Ruth were the recipients of the Congressional Gold Medal in 1996, the highest honour Congress can bestow on a private citizen. In 2001, his was the voice that comforted a grieving nation as he led the country in prayer in the wake of the September 11th attacks on New York. Receiving the Prince of Peace Award in 2004, Billy laid out his hope for the future of a world where peace is so elusive. I want to say in closing that all the glory goes to Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. And there's not going to be any peace anywhere until he comes back and sets up his kingdom. And I want to lay whatever award I've ever received at, at his feet because it's his doing, not mine. Although increasingly beset by Parkinson's disease and infirmity in his 80s, Billy still made supreme efforts to continue his evangelistic schedule wherever possible. The Crusades of his later years were multimedia affairs with contemporary bands and often a social outreach project involved, though the message remained the same. 
Many of the responsibilities for the work were handed on to his son Franklin, now the primary evangelist for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. In June 2005, in New York, Billy preached at his last crusade. The urgent delivery of the hot gospeler of the 40s and 50s had mellowed, but his voice still held an authority that caused people to listen and respond to the unchanging message of repentance and faith. You come just as you are, and come to Jesus, who's on the cross for you and who rose again, and who's a living Savior. I'm going to ask you to come from all over this stadium and make that commitment tonight. You're not coming to me; you're coming to Jesus. On June the 14th, 2007, Ruth, Billy's life partner of more than 60 years, passed away at their log cabin in the mountains of North Carolina. Richard Buse recalls the last visit he made to the couple. The last time I saw Ruth and Billy Graham was in their home, and I was having tea with them. I said to Ruth as I left, "Ruth, you're looking very pretty." These are my last words that I've ever spoke to her personally. And looking at her and Billy, I could see that they were tremendously in love with each other. They would just love to spend the whole day with each other in her declining years and in his declining years. And I thought, what a wonderful way for two people to spend their last years in love with each other and loving God together. Billy's passing away marks the end of a life lived for the purposes of the Creator he worshipped. His impact was felt by millions, but his legacy is not just the many people that were reached, but in the way he carried out his calling, running the race and finishing well. His was a life well lived. He's left us with integrity. That's the big word. Faithfulness to the gospel. Can bring us to the attention of world leaders who can respect Christ through us. I mean, it's always been a success all along, and, and that's not because of the man himself. I'm sure it's the intervention of God's hand in, in everything He's done. The people's hearts have been prepared, and they've come. I suppose you see, in the long march of evangelists across the century, people like John Chrysostom of Constantinople, way back 16 centuries ago, and Wesley and Whitfield, he stands right in line with them. You only get about one a century of, of that caliber. It takes a while for us to recognize that they've been among us. How do you explain it? I suppose it is just that God put His hand on somebody, lifted him up, and said, "I want you." And I want the mantle of world evangelist to fall on you. That was the story of Billy Graham, a life well lived. You can request a free copy of a special Billy Graham tribute magazine featuring over 90 pages of features and photos from across his ministry. Request your free copy at premierchristianity.com/slash. Billy Graham. Coming up next, Premier Playback.